kind of see part of my story like Joseph. God brought them out of something that at the beginning of the story makes no sense. Even in the middle of the story, you sometimes wonder, God, what are you doing? It's an isolated country run by a military government and under civil war for the last 60 years. I had to live in a hotel. We weren't allowed to go very many places. We were even watched and followed sometimes. I was able to get permission to live up there teaching English. So I started having this Bible study. Within a year, we had baptized believers. I knew that's where I was supposed to be. One morning I got to the school. Another friend pulls into the compound, just frantic. There were investigators. I'd just been kicked out of my country. I felt lost. I knew where my heart wanted to be, but I had to trust that God had a reason, and I have to be okay with not knowing why. I was in a neighboring country. I was in this big city. I went to the market to buy some food. All of a sudden, I hear the language of my people. And I realize there are about a half a million of them living in my country. They come here just overwhelmed with life in the big city. I felt a lot like they were. I was a refugee. I was in a country I didn't want to be in, but I couldn't go back. Some of them found community in a local church here. And I went to the pastor of that church and asked them, what were the needs here? And after some discussion, he said, what we need is a Bible school in this city. How to share their faith, how to start a church. I don't know how to start a school. If I need to learn a new skill, I'll learn a new skill. The first day of school, I had 50 students show up. They just kept coming and coming, with little or no sleep, just because they're hungry to learn. And at this point, they're reaching their own people. And they go to a different part of the city to share their faith with factory workers, many of whom have never heard the name of Jesus, show them love, share Christ with them, and plant the gospel seed. Reforms are happening in the country I was banned from. They have new leaders now. I've been granted entry, and I'm making plans to move back again. Looking back on all this, I see that wherever God wants me to be, that's where I feel like I'm home. All right, well, it excites me to be a Southern Baptist to know that we, through our gifts and investment, we send people like this missionary, and they go plant their life in places that uh, many of us wouldn't know, wouldn't want to be, or at least wouldn't know what it would be like to be there. And so it's exciting to be uh, Southern Baptist. Today marks the beginning of the week of prayer for world missions in Southern Baptist churches all across the nation, really, literally all around the world. And, and the reason we're praying and the reason we're doing a Christmas offering and the reason we do what, what as Southern Baptists we call Lottie Moon, if you don't know who Lottie is, Lottie was a missionary many, many years ago, and in her honor we've got an offering. But the issue is uh, we do a Christmas offering every year for missions, and the reason is because of darkness. Much of our world functions and exists in what we would call spiritual darkness. As a matter of fact, 58% of the world's population, that equals 4.2 billion, 
uh, they live uh, in what we would call unreached people groups. That means less than 2% of them are Christian and they have little or limited or no access to the gospel. And therefore, they're living in spiritual darkness. And that's why we do missions. And that's why we appeal to you uh, to pray. And that's why we appeal. I will appeal to you. Uh, at the end of the message this morning to give because people are in darkness. Now, that kind of brings to mind one of my favorite texts in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 9. Kind of one of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus is the story of the, the blind beggar, and we'll kind of get into that. But it's really interesting, uh, this story, because, and it's relevant to what we're talking about, because in John chapter 8, Jesus stands up and he says, Hey, I'm the light of the world. And then he gets in a conversation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and before it's all said and done, they kind of kick him out of, they kind of run him out, they get after him, they run him off. And and on the way out of the synagogue with his disciples, they happen to bump into a guy that's been blind from birth. He's got congenital blindness and uh, literally not just spiritual darkness, but living in in physical darkness. And you know the disciples, as soon as they see the guy, what what they want to know is, man, why is he blind? Did he sin? Jesus or did his parents sin? And of course, you know, they kind of missed the point. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not the point at all. It's not about who sinned. It's about that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And, and if you know, and you remember the story and we'll get into it in, in detail. But so Jesus tells them, hey, yes, it's so the works of God may be displayed. And, and he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because night is coming when no one can work. And, and then and what's interesting, without even asking the guy's permission, Jesus, I think he probably stooped down, scooped up a handful of dirt and spit in it, and he began to make this concoction. Now, you know, anybody, how many of you made a mud pie when you were a kid? Yeah. Okay, most of us. He made a mud pie. It may have been a slushy because he somehow he anointed the guy's eyes. I don't know if he poured it on him. I don't know if he just packed it on him. But but without his permission, he makes this stuff, sticks it on the guy's eyes and says, Hey, you need to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And and then Jesus steps back out of the story. In, in chapter 9, verse 5, he steps out of the story. The guy goes and washes, comes back and can see. And he's looking around and there's no Jesus. There's just not a Jesus. And, and the people see him, and you, if, you can imagine what his eyes were like when they, when they didn't see. There wasn't no light. If you've seen a, a blind person's eyes, there's no life in them. And he comes back, and his neighbors and his friends and the people that, that he probably begged with are looking at him going, Hey, this guy can, there's something different. And they got in this debate. Is he the same guy? And some said, Oh, yeah, he's the same guy. And others said, No, no, he, he can't be the same guy. He, he just looks like him. And so they got in this discussion. And so they asked him, they said, well, what happened to you? And he said, well, this guy named Jesus. And he kind of tells that story. And then there's this dialogue, and it goes back and forth with him and the neighbors and him and his friends. And then they bring in the Pharisees, and the Pharisees aren't satisfied. And then they bring in his parents, and the parents don't, they don't really want to get involved, which we'll look at in a moment. And then it comes back to the Pharisees, and at the end of it all, they boot him out of the synagogue. I mean, they run him, literally, they cast him out of the synagogue. And when they cast him out of the synagogue, that's kind of the place we're going to jump into the story, because there's a fascinating conversation that happens between this guy and Jesus. John chapter 9, we're going to look Look at verse 35 through 38, and we'll go back and pick up some backstory. Listen to what he says, verse 35. He, remember, he's just gotten booted out of the synagogue. I mean, they kind of said, hey, you don't know anything. You're done here. And they cast him out, 
Jesus, verse 35, heard that they had cast him out and having found him said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Let's pray together. Father, in these, these, these next few minutes, would you open the eyes of our heart so that we might see the truth of scripture? But even more than that, God, would you convict our heart that we might understand the importance of this passage as it relates uh, to us and to missions. And God, I would pray for that young person, that, that uh, the father, the mother here, that maybe is not yet a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would understand what Jesus did for them and they would see themselves in this story and see that Jesus came to give them sight. And so God, would you have your way in every, every one of our hearts this morning? God, would you teach your word? Would you hide me behind the cross, bring to mind everything that you want me to say? And may I just skip over those parts that are not relevant to us. And so we trust you to do that. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, well, let me give you a little more backstory. I kind of want to kind of set this thing up, uh, kind of, so you'll kind of see how we get to this conversation. But before I do that, let, let me just ask the question. Why do you think, why would, why would John devote one whole chapter to this one little story? I mean, 40 odd verses. I mean, think about this. John, there's 21 chapters in the book. 12 of them have to do with, with the begin, the, the beginning of creation. John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Only 12 chapters. Five of them deal with the night before he was crucified or the night he was betrayed and before he was crucified. And four of them deal with the, uh, with the death, the burial and, and subsequently the resurrection. And so there's only 12 chapters for his whole ministry. And he chooses to devote all of one chapter to this one guy and to this one event. And that question just kind of captured me on Thursday and I read the scholars and I read the theologians and nobody asked that question. And it kind of bothered me. And I thought, well, why would he do that? And and I come to this conclusion. This is not theology. This is Philipsology. So you can take it for what it's worth. But here's what I believe the reason it is. The reason is when when Jesus saw this guy, what he saw was you and me. And this story about spiritual darkness doesn't just apply to one guy that was was born blind. It applies to every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born. You see, Jesus said in John 20, verse 30, he said, he said these things have I written unto you uh, that believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may uh, believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John said, I wrote this book so people would see Jesus. And Jesus tells this story, uh, and, he, and, he, and John records this story because this unnamed guy that was born blind, that was a beggar, is a representative of you and of me. Because for, in a spiritual sense, every one of us was born blind. Every single one of us was born with a sinful nature. Every one of us is born with a selfish Nature. Now that, that, that ideology kind of counter, is counter to culture. Uh, so many in our culture, we think people are inherently good. They're just victim of bad circumstances. Yet the scripture says that we're born bad. We're born sinners. 
And because we are, you know, we, we act with a sinful nature. Now it's hard to, it's hard to imagine if you've got a little baby, a little baby girl especially, or, or maybe you've got a grandbaby girl and she's three or four months old and she's cute and cuddly and it's hard to imagine that that sweet, precious, wonderful, beautiful little grandbaby girl that's the apple of your eye or baby girl that's the apple of your eye, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that she could be selfish and sinful. But if you don't believe me, take her bottle away and you'll see. Or take away her pacifier. Or, 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 or when she cries out because she's hungry and you're wanting to sleep, just leave her. Just leave her. And you'll find out she's pretty selfish. She wants what she wants when she wants it. And if you don't get what she wants, she's going to let you know it. And, and, if, and if you say, well, I'm not sure about that, wait till she gets to be about a year and a half and she can give you some words. And then you go take her doll away. And she'll snatch it back and she'll go, mine, it's mine. And then your neighbor comes over with her little boy and he's got his little G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. And, and, and then she goes and takes it and she goes, mine. Why, why, why do kids do that? Because we have a sinful nature. We're all born spiritually dark. That's why King David said in Psalm 51, 5. In fact, let me just quote that. Behold, or let me read that. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, listen, let me clarify. What David was not saying is that his mom and dad were in an adulterous relationship, and that they were out messing around, and he, he, that's why he's there. Now, if you read that, you might think that. But that's not what he was saying. What he was saying is when I was, when I was conceived, I got this nature and it's sinful. And the natural response is to be selfish. The natural response is to want what I want when I want it. That's why you don't have to teach your kids to say no. You don't have to teach them to pick on one another. We got to te- we, we, we have to teach them how to do right. You don't have to teach them how to do wrong. Why? Because we've got that sinful nature. Well, because that's true, and, and, and because that's true, so this is a picture. So when Jesus points out the guy that was, that was congenitally blind, that was born blind, what he's really talking about is all of us are born spiritually blind. And, and so as we look into this passage, it, it, it becomes even more clear. So Jesus kind of explains to his disciples, hey, this guy, the, the reason it happened, God wants to show his works. And, and, and so he talks about that. And then he puts the mud on his eyes and he makes that little concoction and he says to go wash in the pool of Siloam. But, but look, in, look in your Bible there at, uh, at verse 7. So after he, after he puts the mud pile on his eyes, he says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back saying, you know, God never puts anything in the scriptures that doesn't have a reason. There's a reason why, in parentheses, the the pool of Siloam, when translated, means yeah. Why is that there? Well, let me give you the, a little more of the backstory. King Hezekiah developed the pool of Siloam. The nation of Assyria was about to come and besiege Jerusalem. They were gonna they were gonna try to take over Israel and take them captive. And so what they 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 dug this pool. They diverted some water from the spring of Gihon and they sent the water from Gihon to the Siloam pool. And so the, the, it, they called it Siloam, meaning the water was sent here. So are you with, you, you get that idea. And so the guy, he, he had, he had to go wash 
in the water that was sent. Now, that's a spiritual picture for us. Jesus said in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And the, the idea is all of us who are in spiritual darkness must be washed in the one who was sent. We don't need to be washed in the pool, but we do need to be washed in the blood of the one who was sent. And so that's kind of the idea and the picture. Uh, that, so it's a picture there, if you will, uh, of the gospel. And so our friend, go, he does what Jesus says. He goes and washes and he comes back and, and he's seeing for the very first time and he's looking around and there's all kind of stuff and people are greeting him and meeting him and, uh, and he looks around for Jesus, but there's no Jesus, which was odd, I'm sure, for him. And he's wanting to find Jesus, and people want to know what happened. And so they get in this debate, and we've kind of talked about that. But look in verse 11. Let's go quickly through this. I want to point out a couple of things that I think are significant. They're asking, they're kind of debating, okay, what the neighbors, his friends, they're like, I don't know what happened. I don't think it's the same guy. I think it is the same guy. So they ask him uh, what happened. He answered, he said, the man called Jesus. At this point, all he knew was that Jesus was a man. That's all he knew. But the man called Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. And now I can see. And that wasn't good enough for them. So they took him to the Pharisees. They said, you're not going to believe what happened. This guy, this guy was blind. Now he can see. And, and of course, the Pharisees, they were worked up. They, they didn't care that he could see. What they cared about is that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. That, that Jesus had the audacity to mix up some, some a mud pie. And, and put it on his eye. That's work. And you don't work on his eye. So they were all excited about that. And they, it's just, they question him. They say, what happened? And he tells them the story of what happened. But notice how he says it in, in verse 17, because this is significant. In verse 17, he says, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he used to be a man, but look at what he says here. He is a prophet. So he doesn't just know Jesus as a man. He knows Jesus as a prophet. Well, they're not satisfied, so they call mom and dad and say, "Is this did, it, was this guy really blind? Was he really? Is this your son? And they go in. And, of course, the mom and dad, they don't want anything to do with it because they're afraid they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And so they just kind of say, hey, he's our son. We don't know what happened. We know he used to be blind. Now he can see. You need to ask him. He's of age. And so they kind of wouldn't touch it. And so, so they go back to him, and they ask him again, hey, man, what happened? And he begins to tell the story. In fact, look in verse 24. Uh, this is one of the reasons I love this. Uh, for, for the second time, they called the man and, and, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, these are theologians. These are preachers talking to this beggar. So get that picture. Theologians, preachers talking to the beggar. We know that this man is a sinner. But listen to what he said. He said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But here's what I do know. I used to be blind, but now I see. Now, let me give you a sidebar here. Somebody pointed this out to me. I won't take credit for it. You see the value in your personal story? Do you see the value in how important it is for you to be able to talk to people about what Jesus did for you? He couldn't defend it theologically. He said, I don't know about this man, but here's what I know. He touched me. And now I can see. And so you and I, we need to be able to share our story because nobody can argue the story of a changed life. They can argue the why, 
They can debate the how, but they cannot argue if Jesus has changed your life. And so he gets in that dialogue and, 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 and then and, and they continue to be unsatisfied. And then if we look down about verse, uh, well, let's pick up in verse 26. It says there, they said to him, what did he say to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now look at what happens. This is again why he's a, he's a reference or a representation of us. They reviled him saying, they reviled him. Have you ever been reviled for the gospel? Has anyone ever made fun of you? Or has anyone ever um, poked at you or picked at you because of the gospel? Because here's what I know happened. If you talk about Jesus enough, somebody's going to revile you. Somebody's going to shut a door in your face. Somebody's going to cut you off. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to laugh at you. It's good. That's what's going to happen. I, I, I'll never forget. This was, I'm scared to tell you, 31 years ago. 31 years ago. I'm, I'm at a church in Austin. We're going door to door Sunday afternoon, knocking on doors. And, um, you know, we're going along and we met some Baptists and some Methodists and, and we, and we're, we're about halfway down the street and we knock on the door and the door opens and I say, my name's Mike and this is whoever I was with. I don't remember. And we're from Hillcrest Baptist Church. And the lady says, I'm Jewish, and as quick as she could, she slammed the door. I mean, just rude. And I mean, I was 21 or 2. I mean, I'd never really been gone door to door. It was a, it, that was an experience for me. And I mean, it, it was rough. But we the, the, here's what saved us. We got about three or four hours down the road, and we knocked on the door. And we said, we're, I'm Mike, and so we're from Hillcrest Baptist Church. They said, well, we're Catholic. They said, we're watching the football game. Y'all want to come in and have a beer with us? So come on in, you know. So, I mean, so we, went, we went from being reviled to being, I guess you could say we were being tempted. I wasn't really tempted. But, 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 but I mean, listen, here's what I'm saying. If, if you take a stand for Jesus, if you take a stand for Jesus, someday, somewhere, somebody is going to revile you. And they did it to this guy. And yet he stood. I mean, four times and on four different occasions, people said, what happened to you? And on four different occasions, he said, hey, I was blind. Jesus made some mud. He put on my eyes. I went down there and washed, and I can see. I mean, he kept saying that. He said it four times. And after the last time, look what happens in verse 34. They kicked him out of the synagogue. I mean, he'd never, he'd only been in the synagogue a few minutes or maybe a few hours. I mean, he was a blind beggar. He couldn't get in. He got his eyes open. He got in. He didn't agree with the ones that were already in, and so they booted him out. And they kicked him out. Right here, verse 34, notice what it says. It says, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And now here's what's amazing about this passage. Jesus has been out of the picture the whole time. I mean, from the time he sent him to the pool to, to right now, Jesus is standing in the background watching. And notice what it says, verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and he found him. There's a lot of truth there, but here's one. Jesus is always watching what's going on in your life. He knows if you're cast out. He, know, he knows everything. And he's, he's, he's watching over you or watching for you or depending on what you're doing, but he's watching. And don't, don't be fooled. 
Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And you know, he always does. But here's, here's kind of a question. At this point, this guy's cast out of the synagogue. He, he, now he can see. He was blind. Now he can see. He knows Jesus is a man. He knows Jesus is a prophet. But here's a question. Is he saved yet? Is he saved yet? I mean, he, think about this. He'd been touched by Jesus. He had been healed by Jesus. He had learned a lot about Jesus. But was he saved? I mean, that's, to me, that's such a compelling question. Uh, because it's easy for us to think, well, I, you know, God's blessed me. I, I believe in Jesus. I, I, you know, I, I even sometimes talk about Jesus. But the question is, are you saved? Is he saved? Because Jesus asked him what I believe is life's ultimate question. Look what he says in, in the end of verse 35. Jesus says, when he found him, he said, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's life's ultimate question. Do you believe in the Son of Man. Now we don't, we don't understand, we don't get the gravity of that phrase, Son of Man. In fact, if you have the King James Version, it probably says Son of God. But the gravity of the Son of Man, what he was really saying is, do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the Christ? And the, the, the Son of the Living God? And, and, and friend, I'm gonna tell you, that is the ultimate question. The question is not, are you a church guy? The question is not, have you been baptized? The question is not, do you know about Jesus? The question is not even, do you do things for Jesus? The question is, do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Not about the Son of Man. Because we, we all believe about Him or we wouldn't be here. But do you believe in Him enough that you've surrendered your life to Him? That's life's ultimate question. Was he saved? Was he saved? I'll come back to that. Let me, let me tell you why it's the ultimate question. Turn back to John 3. Go to John 3. Familiar chapter, we all know it. Everybody knows John 3, 16, but that's not the verse we're going to look at. Listen to verse 12. Actually, listen to verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to, I'm going to hang on a cross. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now watch this, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Listen, if you want to have eternal life, you got to believe in the Son of Man. That's the ultimate question. Do you, do you personally believe in Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Not do you believe about Him, but do you believe in Him? Because what you believe about Jesus is the gateway to eternity. It's the, it, it, it's the only way. Now, again, we come back to that question. Was he saved? Was he saved? And, and here's the answer. Not yet. He knew about Jesus. He'd been touched by Jesus. He'd been blessed by Jesus. But he had yet to be saved by Jesus. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me just give you a hint of why that's true. Look at verse 36. Go back to John 9. Look at verse 36. Verse 36. 
the man answered, or he answered, and who is he, sir? The word sir there is the Greek word kurios, sir. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, after Jesus revealed himself, he said, Lord, same word, kurios. Jesus went from being a man he knew about to a Lord he surrendered to. Because notice how he says that. Lord, I believe. And then what happened? He worshiped him. And so the ultimate question is what do you believe about Jesus? It's the ultimate question. Let me, let me just say secondly, real quickly, not only is it the ultimate question, but it's also, uh, it, it's, it's an unavoidable question. Because Jesus found him out. And Jesus looked in into those eyes he had just opened. And Jesus said to him, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? Very personal. It's an unavoidable question. All, none, none of us are going to escape that question. One day, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, uh, and just as it is, it is appointed unto man once to die, after that comes the judgment. Ever, you, you do know, you do know that one day God's going to audit your life, right? You know that. that there's going to be a final exam. As I think Rick Warren, first guy I heard say that. But there's going to be a final exam. I don't know all the questions, but I know one. It may be the first one. It may be the only one. But it's the most important one in that question for you. That God's going to ask you. He's going to look you in the eye. And he's going to say in some way, shape, or form, do you believe in the Son of Man? And what your answer is, is going to determine where you spend eternity in hell. Or eternity in heaven. See, it's an ultimate question. It's an unavoidable question. And so you need to have the answer. I need to have the answer. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Let me go to one more question just real quickly. Uh, obviously, do you believe in the Son of Man is the ultimate do you believe in the Son of Man is the unavoidable question? But but, but let me just say this. Um, it, it's also an unanswered question. It's an unanswered question because Jesus comes to him and he says, Lord, or, or he says to him, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, when I say it's an unanswered question, it's not an answer for you and me. We've already decided. You know enough about Jesus. If you didn't know enough about Jesus when you got here today, you know enough about Jesus now to either say, yes, I believe, or no, I don't believe. But but that is an unanswered question for some 4 billion people that live in unreached people groups. We talked about them at the beginning. Can we get that slide up here? There, there are four different categories of unreached people groups. There are some that have, they have no access to the gospel at all whatsoever. There's no literature. Nobody's heard his name. Nobody's ever been there. That's kind of category one, category zero. Uh, not a big group, but there's, there's three or four hundred or several hundred people groups. No access to the gospel at all. Then the second phase is, is they're less than 2% Christian. There's some material, uh, in their language. There's some outreach to them, but nobody's working with them now. It's almost 900 million. 
Then the third group of unreached peoples, uh, they've got some, some work going on among them. Most of it's localized. Most of it started in the last couple of years. That's about 1.8 billion people. And then the fourth group, 1.5 billion people, I think it is. Uh, there, there's some gospel work going on there. But, but think about this. Can we get the next slide up here? Okay, let's go to this slide here. See all the yellow brown. Those are the people groups. Over, um, over 6,000 people groups, 6,000 people groups have little, limited, or no access to the gospel. And for them, and for them, the question that's not answered is, who is he, sir, that I may believe? See, we've all had an opportunity. Most of us have had an opportunity our whole life. And yet, nearly 60% of the world's population has little or no access. Some have never heard his name. Never heard the name of Jesus. Now, here's the question. For those of us who believe in the Son of Man, for those of us who believe in what Jesus has done for us, what are we going to do so that those are going to hear the gospel. That's the question. Because we've made our decision, most of us. We've had our opportunity, all of us. And we've made our choice. But nearly 4 billion people hadn't had the opportunity. And they're asking. They, want, they don't even know to ask. Somebody needs to tell them who he is. So they have an opportunity to believe. But they're not going to tell them. Unless somebody goes. In fact, turn in your Bibles to, uh, tur- turn over to Romans. This is kind of where I started out in the week and, and, and I, I, I was looking at Romans. I was wanting to preach on this passage and, and I stumbled on, uh, John 9 verse 36 and it just fascinated me. I'd never really noticed that in the passage that Jesus comes to this guy. He knows all about him. He's been healed by him and touched by him and yet he didn't believe and Jesus asked him that question and, uh, and so we need to ask, but listen to Romans 10. I'm going to pick up in verse uh, 12, Romans 10, beginning in verse 12. It says, for there's no, dis-, actually verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You might be reviled, but when you get to heaven, you will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. You ever heard that before? Has anybody ever said to you, when somebody presented Jesus to you, did they say to you, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What good news, but there's some bad news. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You know, there's nearly 4 billion people that need the gospel. But nobody's going to preach unless they're sent. The question is, are we willing to make the sacrifice to send people to preach. 
You know, we have a family in our church, uh, Mike and Barbara Stevens, his daughter, Brittany, uh, her and her husband, Brandon, are, they're in Central Asia. They, they spent a year here with us, just went back this fall. And they've decided to go plant their life among a bunch of people, many of whom have never heard the gospel. They're, they're over there providing clean water so they can share about living water. I mean, they, they've dedicated their life to that. Now, most of us can't go. Or at least most of us won't go. But all of us can give. And so here's my challenge. Two weeks from today, we're going to do our Christmas offering, kind of our march. You can give your offering whenever. But we're going to do a march for, for foreign missions or, or, or world missions. And I want to challenge as a family to give substantially. I, I, I probably should use the word sacrificially, but we don't like that word. So let me just say give substantially to the kingdom of God. What if... What if you and your family decided that this year you're going to add up all the gifts you give to people and, and however much you spend on, on each other, you're going to take and you're going to give half of that to foreign missions. You say, well, you know, I spent 1200 on gifts for all the people in my family, so I'm going to give 600 to missions. What would happen? Well, the first thing that would probably happen is, is, is we would buy less gifts so we could give more to missions. But really, how, how many more golf shirts do you need? How, how many more outfits to the, the American Girl doll or whichever ones they have do they need? I mean, just think, I mean, just think about this. If, 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 if we were going to give six gifts to our kids or to our grandkids, what if we decide this year we're just going to give four? I mean, let's be honest. Do, do our kids, do our kids, do our grandkids, is there something they really, really need that they don't have? I mean, is there something that I really need that I don't have? And you're shaking your head no, because the reality is if they need it, they got it, right? Isn't that true? Four billion people need to hear the name of Jesus. Are we going to keep giving more gifts that we don't need? Are we going to take some of that? I'm not saying take it all. Just take some of it. And let's give it to missions. So people like Brandon and Brittany and people like our unnamed lady that planted her life in an unreached country can go tell people about Jesus. And so here's my challenge, church. Are you, are you and your family willing this year? Are you willing this year to, to make a little bit of a sacrifice? So the world can hear about Jesus.